You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On this episode of the Talking Taiwan podcast, we're happy to welcome back Dr. Jerome Keating, who has lived in Taiwan for 30 years and writes frequently about Taiwan. In part one of my interview with him, we spoke about his latest book, Taiwan, The Struggle Gains Focus. In this episode, we'll talk about his other writings, his writing process, what he plans to write next, and meeting with the owners of the New York-based Taiwanese-American restaurant, Winson. Welcome to the podcast, Jerome. Thank you, Felicia. So I'd like you to talk about some of your previous books and how that led to the writing of your current book, Taiwan, The Struggle Gains Focus. As I had mentioned briefly in the first podcast, three of my other books end around 2006-2008. The Taiwan, The Struggle for Democracy ends in 2006, was published then. And in 2008, we have the fourth edition of Island in the Stream, which went into its second printing. And we also had Taiwan, The Search for Identity. So those three books end at that period and for that reason, I felt we had now gone through the eight years of Ma and then the four, first four years of Tsai Ing-wen. And I needed an update. You know, those books only led us up to Ma's election. And a lot has, of course, taken place since then. We've had the Sunflower Movement. We had ECFA. We had, you know, all sorts of things. So... I had to bring that all up to date. Now, at the same time, I had also written in that period, the mapping of Taiwan, desired economies, coveted geographies, and therefore that, you know, all the knowledge that went into that, you know, gave me a broader perspective. And I finally had written a non-Taiwan book that's more philosophical on paradigms the paradigms that guide our lives and drive our souls. And so all that, you know, kind of went into this final book. Because this probably be my final book on Taiwan. I feel it's, you know, time to turn it over to some of the younger Turks. They can carry the torch. They, uh, I've got two other books that I want to write, but they are not, Taiwan-focused books. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the mapping book? Because you mentioned how it gave you a broader perspective. Like, did you look at mapping in the sense of like who was the person creating the map? Because depending on like whose perspective it was that created the map, um, you probably get different uh, labeling or um, references to countries, like countries' names or things like that, or even just the um, perspective of the map, like which country or which continent would be in the center of the map, right? Right, yeah, there's many things a map can tell you, and and it partly tells you the knowledge that the map maker has, what he has, what knowledge he has, and what he does not have. Maps have always been important in history, the mapping, in a way, reflects this particular mapping that I was following. You know, there are many kinds of maps, but I was following the maps that countries that were involved in trade 
and commodities and economies around the world. You know, as their ships moved around the world, they obviously had to map the territory that they were going to because they wouldn't get there if they didn't. Uh, but they also then were, they were very specific on that, but about other parts of the world, they were kind of hedgy. And that's an interesting thing you see in early maps. Like, you know, many early maps see Korea as an island. It's a peninsula, but, you know, if you really weren't trading with Korea and you didn't go in that area, you just knew it was up there somewhere. You'd seen it on other maps and seen water on both sides of it, so you figured it's an island. Hmm. The those things influenced the map makers. Some map makers stole from other map makers. Uh, when ships would fight at sea and one ship defeated the other and captured it, one of the first things they would grab were all the maps that were in that ship hmm. because that ship might have knowledge that they didn't have. So a lot of fascinating things that the mapping brought out but probably the main thing was that the Spice Islands, the role that the Spice Islands played in bringing the West to Asia, that, you know, was the, and that has historical factors behind it. And could you tell it, from our listeners what the spi current day Spice Islands are? Well, the Spice Islands are primarily located right below the Philippines, and they're on the equator. Mm -hmm. And the spices from there flowed up into Asia, into India, into Vietnam, into China, and then would go across the Silk Road to the Mediterranean. And then when they hit the eastern Mediterranean, they would be shipped. Venice and Genoa competed for shipping of spices, bringing them to Europe. So that was the normal flow of spices. They were very valuable in Europe. And when the Ottoman Turks took over the whole eastern part of the Mediterranean and the northern part of Africa, uh, they could cut off and regulate the flow of spices to the West or to Europe. And therefore the European nations realized, hey, we gotta find another way to get to spices. And therefore Spain and Portugal were the first leaders in that direction. And they went, the Portuguese went down along Africa and the Spanish went West and thinking that they would run into India, mm -hmm. Columbus, uh, they really ran into the Americas. Mm -hmm. So it took them a little longer to get to the Spice Islands. The other thing that this brought me then, after Spain and Portugal had the basic monopoly on getting the spices, then the Dutch and the British eventually came into the picture. And they were competing and the no monopoly can be held forever. I found this out the when you look at this trade thing. Right. Now, a 
final footnote almost to this is that they eventually figured out how to plant the spice trees in other territories that were their own and therefore the spice islands now are not almost valuable at all they mm. they were once a place that many people fought over wars were fight all that they were part of trade trade wars and now the spice islands are basically ignored because people have other ways to get spices Right, interesting. And how does Taiwan play into all this? Because you said that uh, the Spice Islands are what brought the West to Asia. So how does uh, how does Taiwan come into this? Okay, well, Taiwan comes in as, of course, economies develop, trade develops, and the Western powers begin to realize we can make money not only through the Spice Islands, but also, of course, through our trade with China. And therefore, you know, Taiwan, which is uh, north of the Philippines, not south of the Philippines, like the South the Spice Islands, they begin to realize about 100 years after the, you know, getting to the Spice Islands that, hey, we can colonize Taiwan. And of course, the Dutch were the first to colonize, and they colonized because the Ming Dynasty did not want them close that close in Ponghu, and they said, "Look, why don't you settle on Taiwan?" So we'll this is. You. I apologize. So this is about 16th century. Yeah, the Dutch. I think was like I'd have to look at it exactly. I think it's 1624. They uh, have their first settlement in Anping. Then the Spanish will soon follow. Now, the Spanish were already set up in the Philippines, and the Dutch, of course, were in the East Indies, but the Spanish would go by Taiwan on their way for the Manila-Acapulco trade route. And the Spanish had trade going from China to Manila, and but they also decided they would have a colony in Taiwan, and they settled up by Jilong and Damshui. But they were, and they first, uh, you know, wanted to drive the Dutch out down at Anping. They couldn't, so they made their own own colonies up there. And it was more as a kind of way station, as you know, in case on the way to Japan or coming back. And they also wanted to get into Japan, partly in proselytizing religious reasons. So a lot of complexity involved in this. Right, so that's interesting because um, in our first interview, you did talk about how Japan was the first country to colonize the entire island of Taiwan, and that before that, there were other colonizers, but they only colonized part of Taiwan. So that's what you're referring to with the with Spain and Portugal and the Dutch, right? Right. Now, Portugal never had a colony here. Portugal was well situated in Macau. So they were, you know, right on China's doorstep. So they didn't need a colony in Taiwan. And there was, but the Portuguese named Taiwan Formosa. Their trade was going from Macau to Nagasaki, <clears throat> or to Jima, which is right outside Nagasaki. And it was a Portuguese sailor, a Portuguese ship, 
sailing by on the Taiwan Strait that came closer to Taiwan. And, you know, they saw, wow, what a beautiful island. We don't have time to stop there, but we'll give it a name, Isla Formosa. Um, So could you talk a little bit about your paradigm book? Because that's very interesting. You've written a lot of books about Taiwan, and then you wrote this book about paradigms. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Yeah, the paradigms, you know, doing all this, you're kind of wondering what drives people to follow this cause or that cause? What is their worldview? What is their Weltanschauung? The, uh, you know, why, what, what motivates them? The, even the, like, the whole one China paradigm that the KMT has and the PRC has, you know, how is that formed? But paradigms also, there's so many different, there's three different realms for paradigms. There's science, and that's where the uh, term first came in. Kuhn brought that in as paradigm shifts in science. um, And, you know, paradigms work at many different levels, but there's science, there's there's physics, there's metaphysics, teleology, and then there's phenomenology, which is subjective, personal. Now, physics, science, you know, gives you views of the world, and that is disproved by later science, and you have the paradigm shifts in science. But science never tells you about the meaning of life, the purpose of life. It just tells you what causes what under what circumstances. Metaphysics, teleology, that deals with how we live in community, whether it's a national community, a religious community, an ideological community, all many kinds of communities. And communities have their own rules. And they say, you know, what is proper, what is not proper. And then you have the individual, the subjective, phenomenological, who says, you know, I've got to be myself. So I've got my own paradigms too. You've mm-hmm. got so you've got these three different realms, and they overlap at times. But I had gotten into this way back doing my dissertation in 1972 on the concept of identity in the U.S. And I was fascinated. You know, what made up the U.S. identity? Because you had this, it was called at one time the melting pot, and others say, no, it's not really a melting pot. It's more talk about it like a, a stew, you know, where you mm. have all different ingredients, but the ingredients maintain their own identity mm. while being part of the stew. But anyway, I took the 18th century Puritan view as expressed by Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan divine. I took the 19th century view of the transcendentalist who reacted to the Puritans and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And then I took what I thought was the foremost 20th century Alfred North Whitehead of process philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I was working with that, you know, that those ideas of what drive people's mind and soul as they try to arrange the world as they think it should be. And uh, this got me into paradigms. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
it's kind of a long roundabout way to say it, but uh, oh no, uh, it just makes me curious. Like, did you come to any conclusive um, or something that you could distill as to what you think drives people? Or, I mean, sure, that's a huge question. Well, um, you know, part of the I mean, paradigms really do drive our soul. Like, you know, I comment in the beginning of that on how. You, know, you get suicide bombers who will kill people on the other side because they believe in this cause. Well, what drives someone? Uh, Eric Hoffer had a great book, The True Believer, which reflects a little on this. And in Hoffer's book, The True Believer, Hoffer was an interesting person. He was a longshoreman, but he used to visit libraries a lot. And he, you know, he talks about what makes people join a cause and sometimes people don't have enough sense of personal identity that they need to find their identity in a cause and so they join a cause whether the cause be a religious cause whether it's you know Judaism Christianity Islam and there's an interesting you've got three major religions that come from the same area or whether it's a political cause, communism, uh, you know, or, you know, one China, the, what makes people fanatically join this cause and be willing to sacrifice their lives and become what we call true believers. Now, part of Hoffer's thesis is that these people don't have a strong enough personal identity that they need to find it in a cause. It doesn't mean you can't join a cause if you have a strong personal identity, but a lot of fanatics join a cause because they don't have much sense of self-worth or self-identity. I guess I wandered a little off of that one, but that that's how... No, no, it, that's interesting because, um, yeah, that's one way of looking at it, but then again, you could also look at it from a perspective that maybe some people don't have a strong enough conviction to commit to any cause or um, fight for something. Yeah, and sometimes they're just basically surviving. Now, in the book, I bring in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. I speak of them more as needs than a hierarchy because I think Maslow's hierarchy is cultural. You know, he, he sets it more in a Western cultural with the self-expression as the top uh, but the other aspect of cause also comes in you know partly again how how helpless, helpless you feel or you know what you want to set out but uh, let me just point a couple of paradigm shifts that you know have happened more in the world of physics that say in the western world we believe that one time the world was flat okay now, there's some people that still believe that. <laughs> I'm not going to go into that. But the thinking was that, you know, in the ancient Greek times, that if you sailed far enough to the end of the world, your ship would fall off the end. And I don't know where you'd go, into space, I guess. Then, you know, they changed, you know, then Ptolemy and others realized, hey, no, the world is not flat, it's round. <clears throat> and they had a geocentric paradigm. The geocentric paradigm is that Earth is the center of the universe and the sun and everything whirls around us. And that 
seems obvious from visual standpoint. But then they realize, you know, no, it doesn't go around us. We go around the sun, uh-huh. a heliocentric paradigm. So another paradigm shift, it goes with that. And then say like, you know, the ancient Greeks believed the gods were on Mount Olympus. Well, you know, finally someone climbed to the top of Mount Olympus and said, there are no gods up here. You know, <laughs> what happened to that belief? Well, these kind of paradigms are easily dispelled. And even our heliocentric, you know, we're thinking, well, okay, our, our solar system is the basic. And then you realize, no, we're just a small part of one galaxy, and our galaxy is small in comparison to billions of other galaxies. And I say, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, wow, we're in a much bigger picture than we ever thought. And paradigm shifts are constantly going on in life on all these levels of physics, metaphysics, and phenomenology. Mm-hmm. So the, um, yeah, we, we, you know, we, you know, constantly, and you have culture shock as you go from one culture to another and see that they perspective, you know, paradigms are formed by perspective, which is limited, and our and past teachings, which are limited. Mm-hmm. And so it's always new information that brings the paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. So is that what your future books are going to be more leaning towards to something related to paradigm shift? Uh, well, the next book that I want to do deals with the, you know, I told you how we have physics, uh, metaphysics, and phenomenology, mm-hmm. and physics, you know, that's science, and that has paradigm shifts, but it's constantly being updated, but metaphysics on how we live in community with all our ideologies, religions, etc., and phenomenology how I am as an individual, there's a constant dialectic between the individual and community. You know, the communities are fighting with themselves as well, but individuals in any of those communities are wrestling with the fact, how do I express my individuality? The community wants me to conform this way. My individuality pushes me another way. There's a constant dialectic of give and take, and that's my next book on the individual and community. It's a ongoing dialectic in life, and you know, one we we will never solve, but we have to work it out so we can live peacefully. And of course, a paradigm that I advocate in my book is a paradigm shift from a global village to a global home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really fascinating to think about all these things, especially at the time that we're in with this global pandemic. I'm sure it's shifted a lot of people's thinking um, and perhaps in some way equalized things for people because nobody is um, spared from this coronavirus. Yeah, no, and you, you've hit a good point there. You know, when you look at it, the, the virus cares nothing about borders of countries. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It says, you know, this is our territory, your territory, 
I don't care whose territory it is. I'm moving across it. You, you try and stop me, basically. And the virus is, you know, worldwide. Some countries are doing a much better job of controlling it. Taiwan has done a fantastic job yes. of you know, controlling it, minimizing the number of deaths, etc. Unfortunately, the U.S. has not. You know, they, whatever you hear, they drop the ball early on. They're playing catch up. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a much more complex uh, situation here. We could have a whole long conversation about that. <laughs> Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what your writing process is since you've, you know, been writing so long. I'm curious, what is your writing process like? Okay, uh, part of my purpose in a way, you know, in, in like the writing on Taiwan was driven by meeting so many people who didn't know Taiwan's history in the West and feeling a need to express that uh, and the but another purpose is even you know my own self-discovery you know I, I you know I have partly things that I want to say but also things that I want to in a way discover and you know find out, I, you know, watch my own changes in beliefs and thinking, etc., and realize that kind of what gets at the heart. Say, oh, say the finding of the paradigm book is that you know we need to get if we're going to have peace in the world. I know that sounds very idealistic and mm-hmm. that, but we've got to find a way for all the different communities, religious, ideological, etc to work as one family. What is it to understand and to to understand myself, to understand the communities around me, and to express my findings as I go through that process of understanding? Mm-hmm. That's in a way what I think drives me. The uh, I am a believer that the saying unexamined life is not worth living and so I am constantly examining my life I'm examining the lives of the organizations that I'm part of the world that I have part of and there's another quote that I like uh, I'll give you a couple of my favorite quotes this one's from T.S. Eliot in Little Gidding where he says we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to end up where we started and know the place for the first time and you know you can say that about yourself you can say that about your country you can say that about your ideology the unexamined life is not worth living now, a final quote, and another the, another favorite writer of mine, of course, that I studied was Henry David Thoreau. Now, Thoreau was the champion individualist, and he has one that I like. I have a little placard here. Mm-hmm. 
If a man does not keep pace with his companions, let him step to the music that he hears, however measured or far away. So, in other words, you have to follow your own drummer. Mm-hmm. Put those three quotes together and you kind of have a reason why I write. Through the writing of your books, you've really established yourself as an authority on Taiwan, so much so that Trick Brown and Josh Koo, the owners of Taiwanese-American restaurant Winson, sought your advice and perspective when they were in Taiwan before opening their restaurant. We actually had them on the podcast as guests. Could you talk a little bit about how that came about and your meeting with them? Yeah, I'm trying to, they contacted me. I'm, uh, I, I'm flattered that they sought my advice. I think, you know, they are doing a fantastic job of putting Taiwanese cuisine in New York, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I'd almost, I don't quite know how I got on their radar, but, uh, you know, they contacted me one day and, we went out for drinks and it's kind of a we went to a place that I like on the 38th floor of Far Eastern Hotel there's the Marco Polo Lounge mm-hmm. so it's kind of a it's not exactly you may say the most academic place in the world but we were up there and it, it's a beautiful place it looks out over Taipei and looks particularly in the direction of Taipei 101 but yeah, we were just up there talking about Taiwan. I was giving them my knowledge. Uh, they were telling me about what they were doing, bringing Taiwanese cuisine to New York. You know, and New York is really a, an interesting hodgepodge of many cultures and ethnic foods and everything. So I was really glad to hear that they were doing that. You know, it was kind of fantastic. I admired them for, you know, going both to New York and starting this up. So I guess maybe you'd have to ask them why they contacted me. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we had a great chat and nice, you know, nice view and a nice uh, setting up there. So they're they're doing their part and they, you know, it's kind of like everyone works in their own sphere, I guess. But, you know, they're good chefs. And I don't know where they got all their Taiwanese recipes. Uh, Katie, who also writes on Taiwanese food here, uh, had visited them, I think. So maybe, <laughs> I guess you better ask them, please. Yeah, Shufti. yeah. No, I mean, it's really wonderful. It was a very interesting uh, interview. I did not expect to be interviewing these restaurateurs and then have them start talking about, like, the history of Taiwan and, like, what Taiwan meant for them, more so than just, like, the actual, how they went about getting the recipes and all that kind of thing. So it's very interesting. I just had to ask you about that. And going back to your latest book, The Taiwan, The Struggle Gains Focus, you have some really great photos of you with some well-known politicians and personalities in Taiwan. I'm just looking at the book. I see you have, like, uh, Tsai Ing-wen here. You have Coenza. You have Kalias Yotada, Peng Mingming, Su Bing, uh, the late President Li Zhenghui, um, Ang Lee, just to name a few. 
Um, and so I'm wondering, could you share any memorable stories about these people or one of the people that left the biggest impression on you? Or at the very least, maybe you could say something about the late President Lee Tung Hui. Okay, right. That, yeah, as that's a tough question in the sense of which one left the greatest impression because they all made their own contribution to Taiwan and, you know, kind of their own uniqueness. They're each following their own drummer. Uh, you know, say like of the four presidents, you know, Li Dongwei, Chen Shui-bian, Ma Ying-jeou, and Tsai. Probably, and I credited and I, I wrote a brief piece for the University of Nottingham's Insight page on Li Dongwei. Probably the most visible contribution and all are, are making their own contribution in one way or another, uh, even though I think Mai and Joe follows uh, a paradigm that is not a Taiwan paradigm. He's somehow trying to bring mm -hmm. Taiwan back under the China paradigm, mm -hmm. but that's a different story. Mm -hmm. But Li Dongwei did the most for Taiwan concrete in Taiwan's democracy, and he had to navigate a lot of different minefields. He had to avoid offending this group too much. You know, he had many different forces pushing on all sides of him, but he remained his own man throughout. And this is, of course, what I hope Tsai Ing-wen is able to do, that you know, she faces still some of those forces not the same way that Lee did, not the same way like Chen Shui-bian never had a legislative yen that was DPP majority. He was always fighting a KMT majority legislative yen. Uh, Lee Dong-wei had that, but Lee was able to still bring about getting rid of the National Assembly you know, getting the legislators elected by the people, getting the president elected by the people, and even, you know, putting out the idea that should be there, Taiwan and China should deal with each other as state to state. Now, all of them also, of course, face the pressure, like we mentioned before, of the U.S. still being undecided. You know, 75 years come on, 75 years to <laughs> call it strategic ambiguity, whatever you want. <laughs> How ambiguous can you be for 75 years? <laughs> so uh, I would have liked to have talked with Liang, the, you know, the movie director more. And so it's, uh, you know, it's very hard because each kind of, you know, fought battles in their own setting. Uh, but probably if I just have to say, you know, who did the most in the sense of establishing Taiwan's democracy would be Li Dongwei. But at the same time, you know, he couldn't have done it without some of the others leading the charge on the other side, like uh, Su Beng. Well, you know Su Beng very well in mm -hmm. Su Ming. And, you know, I think you're writing on him. Right. I, that man sacrificed a lot. You know, he almost, you know, he went, gave a lot more of his life and dedication to Taiwan than anyone. The 
he was not he was always as the ultimate rebel in my mind <laughs> uh, and you know he was never able to he didn't want to get into the political scene i think but he influenced it but you know lee was like the inside man who did manipulate or work with all these different factions and still move taiwan to its democracy so uh, i don't know if that answers your question no no that's great thank you for that I understand that there's an African quote that you'd like to share, which really sums up why you write about Taiwan. The quote, until the lions have historians, the tales of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And, you know, I can't remember where I saw that quote or found it or heard it, but it's so applied to Taiwan because you know, Taiwan, and when you look at the quote, you know, we as humans never really hear what the lion is thinking, you know, okay, why are these people hunting me? Why are they coming into my territory? Why do I have to defend my territory? Um, you know, they're just coming to hunt me. And that's, they don't have their voice in a way in the human world. Uh, and so you transfer that and Taiwan's early history, you know, when after World War II, when Taiwan was under Japan as a colony, there were voices that were expressing a Taiwanese sense. And in a way that trio, Su Bang, Li Deng Wei, and Pong Ming Min were all in Japan, but feeling they were colonials and they were feeling the Taiwan spirit in their own way and expressing it. But I found that, you know, the lions, of course, are the Taiwanese. And, you know, they were never yet given their full chance to tell their story. When you get down, you know, the San Francisco Peace Treaty, they should have had the right to self-determination. Now, there were factors at that time. The U.S. is involved with the beginning Cold War with the communists, etc., you know, that mitigated against that. But the Taiwanese, the Dangwai, are the ones that really didn't have the chance to tell their story. And that's what I always was, that drove me. It kind of, I tried to be sometimes the voice of the lions that I heard around me. Uh, not all of them, but you know, of course my wife was Taiwanese and she was Taiwanese to the bone. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, if people are interested in um, getting your books, where can they find them? Okay, the the main publisher of course is SMC Nantian. Uh, maybe I can send you a link for them. Uh, if you're in Taiwan, and they're here, of course, but they also, you can get them online. And Shulin Bookman, they carry my books. The uh, That's a very famous bookstore over by Taida in Taiwan, one that most professors use. Uh, those are the two main places I would feel that they can get them. Mm-hmm. And if my listeners want to know more about you, do you have a website or would you like to be contacted by social media? How can they reach you or learn more about you? 
Yeah, they can find my website if they just Google Jerome F. Keating's writings. It'll come up my website. Uh, that'll give them a thing. And, you know, then if they want to further, you know, I'd first recommend them to go and see if they like what they see or not. <laughs> <laughs> and then contact me. The, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be busy writing other stuff always, but I'm always open to talk to people. So, you know, especially, of course, if they're in Taipei. But I believe, you know, belong to several organizations here. So I usually go to a all-chamber happy hours. They, I, I belong to the Taiwan, Taiwan Foreign Correspondence Club. Uh, but there are different ways, I guess, they can find me. But I'd probably say first, you know, check out my writing, see if it's something you'd want to pursue further. And then uh, if so, you know, maybe we can work out a meeting. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for you taking time out of your schedule to speak to us about your books and your writings and all of your perspectives. Um, thank you so much for being on the Talking Taiwan podcast. Well, thank you, Felicia. It's always been be good talking with you, knowing you, promoting what you're doing. Jayo Taiwan, huh? <laughs> yes, Jayo. I've been speaking with Dr. Jerome Keating about his writings. His latest book is Taiwan, The Struggle Gains Focus. To learn more about Dr. Keating, his books, and any links related to items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.